Turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. Our scripture reading this morning is going to be Galatians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. It's Galatians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. If you're using uh, one of the Pew Bibles, you will find these verses on page 975. For the past several weeks, we have been studying the marks of mature discipleship. Our mission as a congregation of Christ's church is to make and equip mature disciples of Jesus Christ. And so, for the last several weeks, we have been asking, what does it mean to be a mature disciple? What does that actually look like in practice? And to this point in our study, we have seen that the initial mark of discipleship is repentance. It is a response of repentance and faith to the gospel of Jesus Christ that moves us from being not a disciple to becoming a disciple. And so with repentance and faith, we become disciples of Jesus Christ. And we have seen, secondly, that that True repentance, that response of repentance and faith to the gospel, necessarily leads us into worship. As we turn to God and begin to see Him for who He is, we cannot but praise Him. We cannot but proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called us out of darkness into light. And thirdly, we have seen that that true worship will then overflow in our lives in new Obedience, as we begin to, to live lives in obedience to His will. And we've seen, fourthly, that that new obedience is always characterized by self-denial and neighbor love. We fulfill the law. We walk in new obedience as we deny ourselves and love our neighbor. And so we spent the last couple of weeks asking ourselves what that self-denying love actually looks like in different contexts of our lives. What does it look like to deny ourselves and, and love the other in our families? In the relationship between husband and wife, in the relationship between parents and children, in the relationship between siblings. And what does it look like to deny ourselves and love the other with our friends here in the body of Christ? What does it look like in a congregation of Christ's church? And this morning we are going to be continuing that theme as we look at and ask, what does it look like for us to deny ourselves and love one another, not with our friends in the congregation, but with our neighbors out into the community, those whom God has providentially woven into the fabric of our lives. That is the question before us this morning. What does discipleship and what does the self-denying love that marks discipleship look like among neighbors? With that question in mind, let us pray and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of his word here this morning. Father God, as we come before you this morning, we ask that you would indeed open our eyes and our hearts to your truth that you would sanctify us by the truth, and that you would strengthen and equip us to bring forth the fruit of the truth in our lives to the praise of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. This is the very Word of God. 
And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. That is the reading of God's Word. As I said, the question before us this morning is what does it look like for us to love our neighbor well? What does self-denying love of the other look like amongst our neighbors? To this point, we've seen that that self-denying love is, is really characterized by the mind that Paul describes in Philippians chapter 2. He, he writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or from conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interest of others. In saying this, Paul is describing the essential character of a disciple. This is the mind of one who follows Christ. It's the same thing that we see in Romans chapter 13. There, Paul writes, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And so we walk in new obedience to God, that that obedience that flows out of true worship. We, We walk in new obedience when we love one another. This is the the, the characteristic that, that marks all true disciples. And so we are wondering, what does that love, what does that self denying love, what does that other interested love look like in relationship to our? Neighbors. Last Sunday, or actually two Sundays ago, we, we considered what that love looks like amongst friends, amongst the, the household of faith, as Paul calls it in Galatians chapter 6. And we saw that in relationship with one another, we love one another well when we give ourselves, when we give our money and our time and our emotional energy to the physical and emotional and spiritual needs of our friends and of those whom God has has put in our lives as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And what I want us to see this morning is that we are called to the same sort of love in our relationship with our neighbors. There will be a difference of degree. We'll see that in more detail as we go, but there will not be a difference of kind. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we are called to seek the physical, emotional, and spiritual interests of our neighbors. Paul says here, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. I want you to think about that, that phrase for a moment. I think there are at least two things that we need to see. First, we, we notice that Scripture gives priority to the interests of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We, we need to, to acknowledge that, that, that Scripture gives priority to the members of the household of faith. So, so yes, we are to do good to everyone. We're going to come back to that in a moment. That's where we're going to spend most of our time this morning, actually. But we notice that we are especially to do good to the household 
of faith. And we actually see that priority expressed and demonstrated throughout the Scriptures. In those descriptions of the early church in Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 4, we, we see that their concern primarily were for those who were amongst them, for the, their brothers and sisters in Christ. We, we see the same thing when Paul is, is writing to, to take up a collection. He is writing to take up a collection for the relief of the saints in Jerusalem. He is, he is seeking the good of the church. We see it explicitly in a passage like James chapter 2 where he writes, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, we are to respond to them with the resources at our disposal. John says the same thing. He says, If anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? This is actually consistent with what Jesus himself said when he said that they will know that you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. By the way that you respond to your brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is reflected in his parable of the sheep and the goats recorded in Matthew 25 where he says, whatever you did to the least of one of these, my brothers. And so... Throughout Scripture, priority is given to loving and serving our brothers and sisters in Christ. Priority is given to the members of the household of faith. And this is why I say that there will be a difference in degree between the way that we respond to the needs of our friends and the way that we respond to the needs of our neighbors in the community. We are finite creatures. We cannot do everything, and therefore we must prioritize. It is a function of our creatureliness that we have to make decisions about what we will do and what we will not do. And I I want you to hear me say that it is right that we give priority to meeting the needs of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. That is right. That is Appropriate. That is, that is what Scripture calls us to. It's one of the reasons that our deacons spend far more time and, and money and, and energy ministering to needs within the congregation than they do to ministering to needs outside of the congregation. We give first priority to the members of the household of faith. Our elders do the same thing. Yes, I, I counsel and I minister with people outside of the church. Our, our elders do the same. But again, we give priority to ministering to those whom God has made part of our flock, that he has made part of this particular congregation. And so we we give priority to the household of faith. However, having said that, as clearly as I can say it, I, I want you also to hear me say that it would be a mistake then to think that we have no responsibility towards those who are outside of the church. That's what the Pharisees did with the Old Testament command to to love your neighbor. Their logic went something like this. They said, okay, I'm supposed to love my neighbor. Who is my neighbor? Well, a neighbor would be a fellow Israelite. And therefore, I'm supposed to love my fellow Israelites, but that means that I'm free to hate those Gentiles. I'm free to, to hate those who are outside the church, who I regard as my enemy. And too often... In the church, we we follow something of that twisted logic. 
We think we're supposed to give priority to those who are in the church, so therefore I have no need to respond to needs that are outside of the church. Paul addresses that, I think, in this very text. Look again at what Paul writes here in Galatians chapter 6. He says, yes, that we are to especially do good to the household of faith, but notice what he says first. He says, we are to do good to all. As we have opportunity, we are to do good to all. Yes, we give priority to the household of faith, but as we have opportunity, we are to do good to those outside of the household of faith. And I want to suggest to you this morning that that means that we are to seek the physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being of our neighbors as we are able. First, we are to seek the physical well-being. I think this is what we most often think of when we think of doing good to our neighbors. We are to attend to the physical needs of our neighbors. Obviously, we can't do everything, but as we have opportunity, as we have resources, we, we should respond when we see a brother or sister without the world's Goods. And we are to do this, Paul says, as we have opportunity. So think about what that phrase means. What, is it, what does it mean to say that we have an, an opportunity? I think that we can, we can conceive of an opportunity as the coming together of a need and the resources to meet that need in the course of our lives. We encounter a need. We have the resources at our disposal to meet that need both the material resources, the time resources, the energy resources. We, we have the resources to meet that need in the course of our lives. And when we have such an opportunity, when, when a need comes together with the, the resources, when, when the need presents itself and, and we have the time and the money and the energy to respond to it, then we should do good. That is our calling. That's what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves, to steward the resources at our disposal to bless our neighbor, to, to meet their physical needs. This is exactly what we see Jesus describe in his parable of the Good Samaritan, is it not? There's a man who's, who's on his way to Jericho. He's not looking for someone to help, but, but a need presents itself. He encounters a man who has fallen among robbers, and, and he has resources at his disposal. And therefore, he bends his life. And don't miss that. It, it, it changes his plans for the day. It is, it is a sacrifice. He, he changes his plans. He, he uses money for a means other than it was originally allocated. He, 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 but he takes the resources at his disposal. He bends his life to respond to the need of the one whom God has placed in his path. A neighbor whom certainly would not have been called his friend. He was a Samaritan, after all. This was a Jewish man. And Jesus says that we are to go and do likewise. We are to respond to the physical needs of our neighbors. This, this might mean providing relief in a time of, of immediate or, or desperate need. This is actually what we did just a couple of weeks ago when we, we took up an offering for those who had been affected by the hurricane. We, we give money. We, we provide relief in a time of immediate need. But it doesn't always take a, a hurricane. Sometimes it's, it's just a surgery and we, we provide meals. 
Sometimes the, the need isn't necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes it's the birth of a child. And, and again, we, we want to come alongside the, the new parents and we want to relieve some of their, their physical needs. When those needs are closer to home, sometimes we can respond with something other than money. We can give our time. We can give our own energy. Again, I remember someone uh, bringing up a, uh, the point of a fallen tree that had blocked someone into their property, and, and then the appeal was made in Sunday school. And that very afternoon, members of this congregation responded. That's, that's something that we do here in our congregation. But I've heard the same sorts of things happening in the world, you, you see someone in need and you, you respond with time and energy to, to meet that need. But sometimes it's not relief that's needed for an immediate need. Sometimes more, something more along the lines of development is needed to, to respond to a, a chronic need. So one of the reasons that we, report, we support a ministry like, like the refuge, because they come alongside people. They, they give them training and life skills and in particular job skills, and they, they allow them to develop new uh, opportunities to support themselves. And so again, we support that, and we support it with money, but you can also support it with your time. I know some of you volunteer there. You, you give your skills to, to a ministry like the refuge. We give time and, and money. And I want you to hear me say that giving money is not a cop-out. Sometimes people will say, well, we write a check to you know, just clear our, our conscience, but we really ought to be giving our time. And there's something to that. There is something to, to actually volunteering. But I, I want to call your attention to a passage like Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, the apostles saw a real need but instead of responding to it themselves, they say, listen, we have other responsibilities. We have other, another job to do. We, we can't set aside that job. And so therefore, we're going to take this money that's being given and we're going to set it at the disposal of another. They effectively gave money and appointed people to use that money for good work that they themselves could not presently do because of other responsibilities. And so sometimes we give money, sometimes we give time as we are able, but we use the resources at our disposal to respond to the, the physical needs of our neighbors. But of course our neighbors have more than just physical needs. We don't only respond to their physical needs, just as we respond to the emotional needs of, of those who are uh, our friends in Christ, we also are to respond to the emotional needs of our neighbors, of those who are outside of our congregation. Now, I know that for some, that raises a question. It, it raises a question in people's minds about, about whether or not we really ought to be sharing our lives with non-Christians in that way. Yes, it's one thing to, to share your stuff. It's one thing to respond to, to physical needs, but to respond to emotional needs, you really need to share your life. And, and should we do that? Should our, why our lives be intertwined with, with non-Christians in that way? It's a question that some people have. Some people wrestle with, with whether or not they should develop such friendships. And so I want to call your attention to, to two passages in Paul's letter to the Corinthians that I think can, can help us answer this question. Should we allow our lives to, to be shared with those who are outside the church? Well, think about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. If you have your Bibles, you can just turn there quickly. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is dealing with a church discipline case. 
There is a, a case of sexual immorality in the church. And, and Paul has instructed the, the congregation at Corinth that they are to excommunicate this person because they are living unrepentantly in sin. But notice what he says in verse 9. He says, I wrote to you in my letter, so this is a previous letter that he had written. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. But now notice the qualification of verse 10. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of this world. I mean, Paul's assumption, he says, listen... If you're not going to associate with, with sinners, you're not going to associate with anyone in this world, of course you're supposed to associate. Of course you're supposed to associate with those who are outside of the world. My, my instruction is not to associate with the sexually immoral or not to associate with others in unrepentant sin in no way implies that you're not to associate with those who are outside the church. Rather, he, he's talking specifically about how you relate to someone who professes faith in Christ and yet lives in unrepentant sin. And so Paul's assumption here is that the, the believers in Corinth will have association with those who are outside the church. And we see the same thing in chapter 10. Just turn over a couple of pages. Again, here Paul is, is dealing with a different question. He's, he's dealing with the question of whether you ought to eat meat in the first century. That may seem like a strange question to us, but, but the reason that was a question is because there was hardly any meat available in the first century that it had not at some point been sacrificed to an idol. If you're going to butcher an animal, you're not going to waste it. You're going to use it as an offering. And so almost all the meat available in the first century would have at some point been used as a sacrifice to an idol. And so Christians wondered, should I even eat meat? Should I eat meat? Because at some point, this meat was used in some sort of pagan service. And so Paul writes again, beginning in verse 25, he, sees, he says, Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising questions on the ground of conscience. He says, you know an idol's not anything. You're not eating that meat in, in worship of the, uh, of the pagan deity. So eat whatever is sold without raising issues of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you go, have dinner at the non-Christian's house, don't worry about it unless, he says, they say to you, this has been offered in sacrifice. If they turn it into a sacrificial meal, then don't participate. But if it's not explicitly stated, if it's just that the meat at some point in the past had been offered to, a, to an idol, but now you're just eating it because you enjoy a good steak... He says, don't worry about it. Enjoy table fellowship even with your non-Christian friends. So we see clearly that, that Paul expects the, the saints in Corinth to have their lives shared with their non-Christian neighbors. And I want to suggest to you that we ought to do the same thing. We ought to share our lives with those who are outside of our fellowship. And we ought to do it in pretty much the same ways. There's, there's almost no better way to share your life with a neighbor than table fellowship. Whether you have them into your home, whether you go into their home, whether you meet to go out to eat, one way or the other, you, you share your life with your neighbors. And you ought to especially have an eye on those who are most in need of such fellowship. 
those who are most marginalized, those who have the, the fewest connections, the, le- the fewest opportunities to, to have such community and such emotional support, those in your community who, who might otherwise be on the outside because they just don't fit in. It might be a, a race question. It might be a, a language question. It might be a, a question of, of uh, just their sort of life status. Maybe they're a single mom right now and they just don't really have time to develop relationships because they are so overwhelmed with all the responsibilities that are falling on them. And we ought to, at those moments, reach out to those who are most marginalized to bring them into our lives. Again, you you cannot be everyone's friend. We are finite creatures. Not every need is a calling. But we ought to be willing to bend our lives. We ought to be willing to inconvenience ourselves. We ought to be willing to redirect our resources to meet the interests and the needs of our neighbors, their physical needs, their emotional needs, and finally, let me say, their spiritual needs. And yes, I'm talking about evangelism. I know that's an uncomfortable topic for many in the church today. We, we know we don't do it well, and we're really not quite sure we want to do it well. Uh, we'd like to just sort of get away with disobedience in this one area because it's just a little bit easier. But if we truly believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the greatest need of every person, then we have to understand that we cannot truly do good. We cannot fully do good to our neighbor while neglecting this aspect of their need. Now, I understand why evangelism makes us so uncomfortable. I sometimes hear people say, well, you ought to be willing to share the gospel the same way you recommend a restaurant. If you're willing to tell someone about a good meal that you had, then you ought to be willing to share with them the good news of Jesus Christ. Let me suggest to you that that's silly, and it is terribly misleading. There's not much at stake when you recommend a restaurant, but it is a weighty thing to share the good news of Christ. Let's just acknowledge that up front. Paul said that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the aroma of death to some people. Jesus said that this gospel can sever even the closest of relationships. It is a weighty thing to share the gospel. When you share the gospel with someone, you are telling them that they are presently under the wrath of God and that they will remain under the wrath of God unless they bow the knee to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. That is not recommending a restaurant. This is a weighty thing, and we ought to regard it as a weighty thing. And we ought to do it as a weighty thing. Because while, yes, it is a heavy thing to share the gospel of God when it might be received as the aroma of death, love for our neighbor compels us to point them to Christ as the only true hope in this dying world. Not everyone's called to be an evangelist in the full sense. Not everyone is is called to proclaim the full gospel of of Jesus Christ. There are are those who are gifted in that area, and there are those who have the, the, the ability and the opportunity to do that. But let me say this, that every one of us 
is called to confess Christ as the reason for our hope. Maybe you're not comfortable, maybe you're not equipped sharing the full gospel with your neighbor, but you can point them to Christ as the reason for your hope, and you can invite them to come and hear more, whether that's at a worship service, whether that's just at a, at a dinner with a friend who's, who's better equipped to share the gospel. It doesn't have to be one particular context, but we need to confess Christ as the reason for our hope, and we need to call people to come and hear more. Come and hear about this one who told me everything I ever did. Come and hear more about this one who is my hope in the midst of desperate circumstances. Come and hear about this one who gives me peace to face the future. Come and hear about this one who gave me the power to change. Come and hear about this one who has filled my life with a purpose I never knew before. Invite people to come and hear about the one who has given you a hope that is found nowhere else. This is what Peter means when he says, be prepared to, to confess Christ as the reason for the hope that you have. All of us are called to this. We, we don't have to, to beat people over the head with it. We don't have to make it the, the, the focus of every conversation. But at some point, we need to point our neighbors to the hope found in Jesus Christ. And we need to remind them that when they're ready, we're ready to invite them into a fuller conversation, because this is what it means to do good as we have opportunity. Yes, it means responding to their physical needs. Yes, it means responding to their emotional needs, sharing not just our stuff, but our very lives with them. And yes, it means sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with them, because as, as we confessed earlier in that service, He is our only true and final comfort in life and in death. And may we be prepared to share the comfort that we have received with those whom God has woven into the fabric of our lives. May we be prepared to do good at every opportunity. Yes, it is hard. Yes, it is costly. Remember, Jesus calls this self-denial. It feels like dying. But Jesus also says, the one who will die in my service, the one who will lose his life for my sake, that one will know true life indeed. There is no greater joy for those who are created in the image of a self-giving God than to give ourselves away in the service of another's good, especially when that good is the eternal joy of salvation in Jesus Christ. And because we were created to find our joy in serving the interests of others, that is why we call this the, the, the call to die. We call even this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we pray that you would give us the strength we need to hear this gospel, to believe this gospel, and to live in accord with this gospel, Father. Give us the strength we need to bring forth this fruit in our lives. May we be people who bend our lives and use our resources to meet the needs of our friends in Christ and our neighbors in the community. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.